to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. My guest today has been on, he was on four years ago. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his band. I hate to say this, but I just, I've, I've liked them. Back when I was in high school, I got their I guess it's called an EP, because it's smaller than an LP, I believe, Amore. And I remember I got it, and back then we had to go to record stores. Back then, so I went to Peaches or Wall-to-Wall Sound or Sam Goody, because back then, the only way you could get records through the mail was the uh, Columbia House Mailing Club. And we never paid the money back, and we got tons of albums and screwed up all our credit, but we were 14, so no one gave a crap. But yeah, so I just I love his band, and uh, the other night I'm watching Miami Vice, because I go on these Miami Vice benders, and Satellite comes on, a great episode with Brian Dennehy, and Satellite happens to be one of my favorite songs of the band The Hooters, and my guest from The Hooters is Eric Bazilian. How you doing, Eric? Hi. That's great, thanks. How's everything over there? Good. You know, I gotta ask you, you're in Sweden, what's the lockdown like over there? Lockdown? What lockdown? You guys, I mean, seriously, I mean, you guys are allowed to, are you allowed to go out or what's going on? Totally. There's never been a lockdown here. Uh, Sweden has become a a pariah among nations because um, they've never really had a lockdown. They have guidelines that that they suggest you follow. Um, Meetings over 50 people aren't allowed. Um, But, you know, I was just out on the street. I was biking around, no masks. Um, However, you know, the uh, Sweden's death rate is definitely higher than the Scandinavian neighbors, still way lower than the U.S. Um, um, I hope they know what they're doing. You know, their, their, their rationale behind this is that every country that does do a serious lockdown is going to have a big second wave and a big third wave. And so on and forth, so forth. Sweden, very much like its character, just wants a slow, steady <clears throat> decrease, decline. Now, how long have you lived in Sweden? I know your wife's from Sweden, right? Yeah, uh, I don't live here. I, I mean, I, I'm stuck here since March. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I guess I've been sort of living here for the past three years. Now, being stuck there and being a performer, and you can't go on the road. What does that do for your creativity? Does it make you write more, or does it get you frustrated and pissed off that you can't get in front of an audience? Both. I go through I go through phases, and I've learned enough enough self objectivity to know when I'm going through one of my mo- my swings. Um, I've had a couple of really creative um, really creative phases here where I've written a ton of songs and recorded a bunch of stuff, and I actually have a solo album about done. Um, and but then that alternates with you know just feeling like I'm lost and lonely and and miss home. Yeah, my thing. Your solo, your solo album. What kind of music is it? Because you play so many different instruments, you write so much different. I mean, the Hooters themselves have so many different sounds. Like if you break it down, you know, there's some Celtic, there's all different stuff. I mean, it's just a great sound. Your solo album. What can people expect from it? What kind of music? I mean, I. It's rock music. It's definitely, um, when left to my own devices, I rock. It's what I do best. Um, uh, this this record has been interesting. I've sort of given it a frame of, of a, only a very few instruments. Um, I, I start every song with the mandola, which is an instrument that I brought into the Hooters around 2007. 
and um, it's it's pretty ubiquitous in our in our show now. Uh, we call it the Hooterizer. It's it's not really a mandolin. It sounds more like an acoustic guitar, but because of the voicings and the limitations, it has a very unique character. So I do all my writing on that, and then um, electric guitar. And I am only allowing myself to use one electric guitar here. I have um, a 1964 Italian Ellie sound that I got around the corner at the greatest music store in the world. And I really thought it was just going to be furniture. And I plugged it in, and it sounds amazing. And it plays okay. There are a lot of things I can't do on it, and I think that's good. It sort of it sort of focused me into a particular way of playing. Um, and I also keep it tuned down to C sharp, so um, every song I'm writing is in the key of B. For a while, I, I was thinking of calling the album songs in the key of B. <laughs> Except some of them aren't in the key of B, so that would be a problem. I'm sure someone would notice. But um, yeah, it's, you know, mandola, electric guitar, bass, drums. You know, I, I don't have a drum set here, so I send my files either to David in the U.S. or to my, my guy Roman in Slovenia, and I get great drum tracks back. Now, what's the difference when you, in your history, writing for yourself or writing for, let's say, the Hooters or you've written for so many other bands? Do you have a different mindset when you write for yourself? Do you have a certain message you want to convey? Or is it just right now, that's who you're writing for, is you? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I never have a message I want to convey. The message kind of conveys me. You know, words come out of my mouth and uh, they surprise me. It's kind of, um, not kind of, it is therapy. It really does tell me a lot about what I'm thinking that I didn't know I was thinking. Um, the process the process is a bit different, yeah, because I leave things in that I know someone else would say, hey, that's too weird. <laughs> you know, which is, I mean, imagine if I had tried to write one of us with, some, with someone else. That, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. You know, if I had started singing if God had a name, they'd go, okay, really get serious, you know. <laughs> yeah, who wants the song about that? So, so, I mean, this has been a good re- sort of return to my source, as the, the spiritual and spiritually inclined like to say. Now, what was the first instrument you played? When did you start playing music? How old were you? I know you're you're a Philly kid, and was it? Did you start with piano, or what did you start with? Yeah, I played piano. I took piano lessons when I was six, six or seven. My mom was a concert pianist. My mom was a child prodigy. Um, ridiculous. She's still she's eighty seven now, and she, she is insane on the piano I mean I, she can read the first of all the way she can read she can read the phone book um, so I, I, yeah, I started playing piano very early on I got very frustrated with the lessons so I quit because <clears throat> when I skipped ahead to the last piece in the book and learned it and really got off for the first time my teacher got very angry literally ripped the page out of the book and took me back to page four um, and I said no no nah, nah. <laughs> Not for me. And then when I was eight or nine, uh, I had an uncle who showed me a few guitar chords and I started playing Down in the Valley. I think that was the first song I ever learned. And then when I was 10, I learned how to play a Joan Baez song, uh, El Preso Numero Nueva, and I learned how to sing it in Spanish. My uncle was friends with, uh, with Gene London, 
who had a, a children's you know, morning TV show in Philly. So he got me on the show. So when I was 10, I performed El Cresson de Menorueva on, on live TV. <laughs> I remember the Gene London show. Everyone, Gene London, Wee Willie Weber. There was all those shows. It was, it was great TV. Channel 17, 29, and 48. It was before 17, 29, 48. When I was on Gene London, there was 3, 6, and 10, and 12 had just come in. <laughs> you know, 12. I think 12 started in, in 65. 17 was probably 67. It's crazy. You know, you think about it, you know, because when I moved back, then when I first started dating my wife, 3... And 10 switched. Like, one was ABC, one was NBC. And all of a sudden, they switched. And I'm like, who the hell does that? Like, I'm sitting there going, you know, six state action news, which my wife hates that song, that show, because she hates the song. She hates the intro. Really? So she Love that song. I do, too. That's the best. <laughs> so now, now, when did you start writing songs? When did you start writing music? Well, it took me a while to really hunker down and address the craft of songwriting. You know, I was... I was 10, uh, just shortly after I did that Ed Sullivan, that, uh, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Uh, shortly after I did that Gene London show, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. And I already played enough guitar to the point where I got Meet the Beatles, the American, first American release. And I was able to figure out the songs and start my first band. Um, and I knew that they wrote the songs, which set them apart from a lot of the other artists at the time, aside from the Beach Boys, but um, I didn't really have the patience to get into that. I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to be, first I wanted to be Paul. I wanted to be all four of them. But guitar really was the thing that sort of sort of hooked me in, so I just spent most of my time doing that. When Tommy came out, I was 15 and I went. I saw them at the Electric Factory the day it was released. And I, at the same time, read an interview with Pete Townsend in, in Rolling Stone, where he talks about the writing process for that album. And it was the first time I'd ever really heard someone, read someone explaining how how it actually works. You know, when when, when they interviewed John Lennon, he would say, "I just sing words that feel good, that sound good." cocky guy that he was um, but you know Pete had a re really went deep into the, into the into the process you know the all the mental stuff the emotional stuff recycling old bits that he had so but that still wasn't enough to get going on the writing process uh, I wrote a couple of songs my first serious band was when I was 16 and I, I wrote two or three songs for that but we had a, a singer rhythm guitarist who was a great songwriter and I let him do that I'll just do the arrangements and 10 minute guitar solos so it wasn't really until I met Rob I was 18 when I, when I met Rob at 10 and he was the first person that I ever knew who was in, involved in an ongoing songwriting collaboration with David Kagan the singer from that band from Wax later Baby Grand and they sort of let me into the process a little bit I, I just began to understand that it's not just a lightning bolt that hits you, although at times it is a lightning bolt that hits you, but all the work that goes into drawing that lightning bolt, all the preparation, all of the skills that you have to acquire. So I, I watched that for a while, and then they let me into the process eventually. So it really wasn't until my 20s that I became seriously into the, the process of, uh, of songwriting. 
Now, you met Rob at Penn, and now Penn is a very competitive university, Ivy League. How is it to be, how would you handle trying to start a band when you're in college and going to such a prestigious university? Was it hard to juggle both? No. I mean, I managed to get my schoolwork done somehow, barely. But, you know, I was that generation where you went to college because it was expected of you. I suppose it still is to some to some degree. But, um, you know, I, I went to school to meet other musicians. I mean, I, I, I did get my degree. I finished all the pre-med requirements for my plan B. But, uh, I, you know, I met Rob early on. He graduated three years before I did, so I had some time there to actually do school to some extent. I had another band while I was there and was involved in a, a bunch of different musical projects. When you guys started, when the Hooters hit the Philly music scene, what was the scene like back then? Because Philly's going through ups and downs. You know, it's like, for a while, you know, I remember, like, I grew up in Cherry Hill, and Summerdale, like, in the 80s, was the galaxy. It was metal. You know, that was the, the big scene, Empire Rock Club. What was the scene like when you guys were starting out, and you had a different sound? Was it easy for you to automatically start working? Yeah, it was. We got really lucky because... Um, David, our drummer, and uh, John Kuzman and Bobby Woods, who were our original bass player and guitarist, they had been in a band that played at, at a club in, in Levittown called Vernon's. And actually, the way that they came into the band was when their singer and guitarist left, I subbed for them. I subbed for the, for the two of them that had left for a couple of weeks at Vernon's, and we had a great time. And that's when it occurred to me that aside from David, who we had already decided was going to be a drummer, let's bring these other two guys in and we have a full band. It made perfect sense for us to start our live career in Levittown because, you know, Hot Property already had a bit of a following there. So we started playing five, six nights a week at Vernon's or Maddie's, the clubs up, up in, in Bucks County. It's so so cr- that, that was our Hamburg. Levittown was our Hamburg. <laughs> It's, it's crazy, you know, because live music was really big back then. And there was a lot of originals, but it's funny because there's so many cover bands in the area, too. Like, when I moved back, someone's like, hey, I'm going to see Don't Call Francis. And I'm like, Don't Call Francis is still around? He's like, well, yeah, but I think only Francis is in it, but he might not even be the Francis. And it was just different then. There was so much original music. How did you guys start getting a following because you were so big at one point in Philadelphia as I said I remember Amore I remember buying that like that and Robert Hazard had his little uh, I guess they were EPs when did you guys start getting a following and was it because WMMR MMR was a huge factor in that absolutely you know as I said we started playing five six nights a week at, at, at these clubs and we weren't the easiest sell you know we were a multiracial band playing reggae and ska, and nobody had heard of that. Certainly not out in Levittown, but we also rocked really hard, and we had three guys, well, two guys from Levittown in the band. We knew everyone there. So it was really word of mouth. It went viral just on a, on a live basis. Um, but I think sort of the big bang for us was when when Michael Tiersen took over WMMR, Guerrilla Radio, he locked the doors and said, I'm only going to play what I want to play. 
and he, I think he, I don't know who called who, but Rob and uh, and Betsy, who was our manager at the time, <clears throat> went down to the station with our first demo tape. We had literally just recorded our first live to two track demo, which, by the way, had a version of All You Zombies on it. But that wasn't the song. Michael Tierson heard Man in the Street, an old ska instrumental by Don Drummond. And the next day, he played it. And then he kept playing it. And people started calling for it. The phones went off the hook, quote, unquote. All of a sudden, they wanted us in town. We start, you know, we, we did a residency at Grendel's Lair for almost a year, every Monday. You know, and the same thing, the first... First Monday, maybe we had 50 people. Within three months, the line was around the block. In the meantime, we did a live broadcast with MMR of um, with, with the English Beat, who were our heroes at that time, at the time, doing that genre of music. And they pulled all you zombies from the recording and started playing that, hitting it really hard, which became our second single. It's so crazy you think about it. Like, as you guys were getting big, it's not like now was there's social media. You know what I mean? It's not like, I mean, you hear it on the radio, but that's the only way you would really hear about you guys. And I listen to MMR, but now it's like someone can say, hey, check out this band in YouTube. So it was really like the original, you guys were like a grassroots band getting that following. Now, when you started getting more popular, did you sit there and put it in your mind that, you had to write more music? Did you feel like something's coming where, like, okay, we're getting hot, we're going to have to do an album eventually? Well, we just wrote music. That was all we did. That was our goal. That was that was the whole reason for putting the band together was as a vehicle for our songs. And we just wrote and wrote and wrote. I don't know how we had time to write, playing five or six nights a week and rehearsing, but we found time. <clears throat> now, whose idea was it for you to play a high school? That was probably between our management and WMMR. Um, someone came up with the idea of having a school spirit contest. And, you know, that was the deal. You the, the school that sent in the most cards, it was originally, but the, the rules just said it had to be a four by five something with WMMR, the Hooters, written on it, which ended up being a lot of, uh, a lot of phone books that were cut up in wood shops at schools. <laughs> But, you know, they expected that maybe they'd get 100,000 entries. It ended up being 26 million. I mean, how does that make you feel, you guys? I mean, as a, as a band member, you must be like, I mean, 26 million. I mean, that's that's insane. I mean, it must sit there. Did it make you feel like, wow, you know, we have a good thing going? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were riding the wave. <laughs> you know, we were so caught up in it. I don't know how much we really appreciated at the time how amazing it was, how magical that time was. And the fact that there were all of these places for us to play. We were playing still four or five nights a week. It was, you know, the relays. You know, South Street had Ripley's. It had um, uh, uh, Grendel's. It had uh, Dobbs, which we actually never played. We just never played Dobbs. Um, There was uh, Stars in the very beginning, which was actually our first gig in Philadelphia. That was a Stephen Stars Club. So, and we would play on Monday night. We would pack Grendel's Lair until two in the morning. Where did these people come from? Didn't they have jobs? <laughs> you know, it was insane. 
the, the time. And, you know, the Ed Hazard at the same time, and, and the A's were still around. It was just this golden age of music and, and the, the, the stick men. And then, the, you know, the real, the really credible alternative indie bands. We never really got the respect from the, from the, uh, the indie people. We were, I think, way too, I don't want to say commercial, because God knows we were anything but. We were weird. We were a star and reggae band, but we were writing songs with lyrics that made sense to average people. <clears throat> now, when did the I know you put Amori out and it was how many songs was that? Six? Five? Wait, I'm trying to think. It was eight. Eight, okay. And I remember as I said I, I had that. And then you went after that did the record companies come a courting? I mean how did how did you get that from doing that to getting a record deal? You'd think, wouldn't you? Plus the fact that Rob and I had our track record from the Cindy Lauper thing. <clears throat> And the fact that we had Rick Chertoff, who produced this indie record, who was the drummer in our first band, worked at Columbia Records. It was still a struggle. Come to New York, they would say. Let's see what you got. No, come to Philly. No, you come to New York. Now, some bands would, would bust their fans up to New York, and they would play at one of the pay-to-play places. We, we just never did that. And even after we'd sold 150,000 copies of Amore, Rick Chertoff still had to use his muscle to get assigned to Columbia. <clears throat> Why do you think that is? Because I, mean, I, I, I hear so many horror stories about the record music, record industry, and just the people trying to get signed and jumping through hoops and bands that no one would look at it for five years, and all of a sudden someone signs them, they sell an album, it goes platinum. What do you think it was? Because it, it was a different sound? I mean, you were a proven track record. You had a following in Philly. You sold, as you said, 150000 of a self-produced EP. I mean, what do you think it was? Were they just afraid of the sound? You guys were good-looking guys. You were, you, know, you were vibrant. I mean, what do you think it was? It was Philly. It was the Philly thing. We were close enough to New York, but far enough away. We were the poor cousins in Philadelphia. We were the, the uh, unsightly sister. If we had been from Athens, Georgia, they would have been all over us. <laughs> if we'd been from Podunk, they would have been all over us. But it, it was this weird thing with Philly. It was really hard for bands in Philadelphia to get arrested. You know, Robert Hazard barely got a record deal. On um, uh, Escalator of Life should have been a, a, a worldwide hit. That was a great song, a great record. It's funny you say that because, well, it, the whole concept of Philly and me growing up in New Jersey, people are so uneducated. Like when I lived in LA for all those years, they say, Oh, where are you from? And I'd say, New Jersey. And they go, Oh, you're near New York. And I say, No, I, I'm 10 minutes from Philly. And people never conceived that. And it's weird. Like, people never understood that, you know, hey, Philadelphia has the Liberty Bell. You know, there's, there's a, it's a very historical place. But people just have this weird feeling about Philly. And you think with you guys, because Philly had great music. I mean, you know, Paul Notes, you know, all those great, the, all the sounds that came out of Philly. And that always cracks me up because when you sit there and you look who's from Philly, it's a kick-ass list. I mean, and it's, so it must suck when you're in that position as an artist where you're doing well that all of a sudden you can't get the respect. It was it was a little frustrating. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Hall & Oates. You could also mention Todd Rundgren. They left. 
they all left as soon as they had the, the first taste of success. We're the band that stayed. So you stayed, you got the record deal. Now, did you record it in Philly? Did you record it in New York? Where did you record uh, Nervous Night? We cut the basic tracks in New York, the record plan. And then we did, did the overdubs in Philadelphia at Studio 4. So we definitely spent more time working on it in Philly. Now, back then, MTV had such a huge uh, following. It's so funny. I was watching something on VH1. It was a Chappelle uh, marathon this week. And they're they're doing... Uh, previews of the shows they have and they're like they look like the most crappiest shows you ever see and we used to always say VH1 was like for the the 32 year olds like when we were 18 you know MTV was for us us kids but how do you think MTV helped you guys get some success oh that was our YouTube MTV was YouTube absolutely you know it's our, our, our first video was, was All You Zombies, which was a weird-ass video. We shot that in a pumping station in London with a, with a bizarre cast of extras. Um, it was a dark, weird video. And it got some attention. MTV played it. You know, I mean, at this point, we did have the muscle of Columbia Records behind us. And we also had a, we had a really strong management team. Um, but then, and we danced came along, and that was that was a perfect summer hit. You know, the, the, the video we shot in the drive-in. It was like it was like a, it was like a Spielberg movie. I think it was just the right video at the right time. What drive-in was that at? The Exton Drive-in. Okay. Which had, which had already closed, and they were just about to rip it down. So it was like an episode of the Twilight Zone where they brought it back to life for a night. Now. I, always, I wanted to ask you this last time. I don't think I did. All You Zombies, the version on Amori is different than the version on Nervous Night. But yeah, the, the arrangement is the, produ the production is certainly, yeah. Did the record company suggest that to you? Or, or how does that happen when you have a song and you already have it recorded and people know that version, especially us in yeah. Philly, and then something else, they say they did the same thing to Tommy Conwell, I'm Not Your Man. They changed it to having him rap somewhat in the beginning. Does the record company say to you, come up to you and say, do this, or do you, do you sit there and go, well, this has to work this way? Well, Rick Chertoff did work for the record company, but he was our guy, and we trusted him. If someone from, from the label, one of the suits had come down, no, we would not have listened to them. And if anything, usually when someone from the label comes, they say, you know, make it shorter, make the vocals louder. No, Rick said, this song deserves way more than a three and a half minute pop recording. Let's make this an epic. What would Roger Waters do? And that was our mantra as, while we were coming up with that arrangement. That really was a labor of love. We, we, every, every step of the way on that was, it was organic. And we do have Rick to thank for that. Rick really, really pushed us. He pushed me to come up with that guitar riff. He pushed Rod to come up with that intro, chordal intro cadence on, 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 the, on the synth. Now, when you guys would write together, because you're versed in many instruments, and I believe Rob is too, how would you decide who writes what part, or is it just a collaborative process, or sometimes you take the, you take the lead, sometimes he takes the lead? How does that work when you're two very strong 
songwriters? Do heads ever clash, or do you just know how to work together to make that work? Yeah, we kind of know how to work together. Um, at the time, we did everything head-to-head. It was really, we both had to be in the room for it, for it to happen. Sometimes I'd go home. I remember I went home and I wrote the first lyrics to Amore one night, um, which if I'd written them with them would probably have been better because they don't make any sense. Um, then again, a lot of the songs that we wrote together don't either. Um, but yeah, it was pretty much, yeah, pretty much two of us in a room. You know, as time went on, I suppose we would get more, take more stuff home, bring in more ideas for each other. But everything has to go through the filter. Now, Explain to me the song Concubine, because it's like the catchiest song, but, you know, people, American people aren't singing about, most people, I think when I first had heard it, I had to look it up in the dictionary to see what a concubine, concubine was. Can you imagine, can you imagine the grief we would get if we were to release a song like that now? <laughs> I mean, it, it was a really misogynistic song, however, it was being told from the point of view of the, uh, I think as Randy Newman calls it, the um, unreliable narrator. So the guy singing the song wasn't us. The guy singing the song was like, hey kids, don't do this at home. Now, now but how do you, like, I mean, it's something, I guess, I always, I'm always fascinated because you guys jump from sound to sound. How do you, I mean, how does that happen? Is that just an instinctual thing? I mean, even when you see you guys live, you know, there's, the gong, you know, you have the gong on all you zombies, and it's just like, holy crap, because when you're at the Keswick, and people, if, hopefully they can play this year, it's an amazing show, you guys, I mean, you play, people say Springsteen plays forever, I'm sitting there going, holy crap, these guys are up for, you're up there forever, I mean, how do you incorporate a gong, like, in a stage show, and, and, and the people who are the stage managers must go, Jesus Christ, the damn gong again, this shit's heavier than all hell. Yeah, yeah, well, the gong is really, it's there for the visual. I don't think there's even a mic on it. Although <laughs> it, it carries, it doesn't need a mic. You know, I know every year our our our, our crew asks us with great fear and trepidation. Oh, what new instruments are you bringing this year? <laughs> but you know, personally, I'm going the other way. I'm trying to I'm trying to to uh, strip down to the essentials. Like when we tour now, I try to play the entire show on one guitar, one mandolin, the mandola, one saxophone. Is is that because you just don't want to carry all the shit around, or is it just because you just want to be one with the, those instruments? I mean, I, it always wonders when people are changing out a guitar. It's like, why do you do that? Is it because that is a certain sound, or is it because that's your favorite guitar? I don't know. I used to do it because I thought that's the guitar I played on this record and that's the guitar I should use. But I realized, I go back and listen to all my records, they all sound the same because they all sound like me. It doesn't matter what you put in my hands, it's going to sound like me. Now... And, um, and then, you know, the, the iconic guitarists of our, of, of our generation, of, of, well, my generation, your generation, really were known for one, one guitar. You know, okay, Mark Knopfler now plays a hundred different guitars, but the, the sound that we all know Mark Knopfler for was that 56 Stratocaster. You know, Jerry Garcia, it was the Strat or then the Wolf that, that he played later. Um, you know, George Harrison, it was the Gretsch or the Rickenbacker. 
Now, you've played so many shows, and I just, you, you have to tell me what it was like to play Live Aid. I mean, you know, when you sit there, I remember we were, I was down the Jersey Shore, and me and my friends were going to take the bus up from Avalon, Avalon to Philly. That's a great bus trip. And it was like oh, yeah. hot as shit. And I remember it was on TV, so we could watch it. But what was, how did you find out you're going to play live? How did you find out? And, and how big is that to a hometown kids to be playing the biggest, at the time, and maybe still one of the biggest concerts of all time? Well, we had already played at JFK Stadium. We opened for The Who there in 82. And when we first heard about the show, we thought, oh, my God, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get on it? And I think we were in, I don't know, we were, we were actually on the road. We were, we were touring with, um, with uh, Don Henley when we, when we found out we were going to play. And I think we felt that there was some poetic justice in it. There, there, there needed to be a hometown band. There needed to be, and it was fortunate for everyone that we were starting to really get our name out there at the time. Uh, and we danced hadn't come out yet, but All You Zombies was all over MTV and getting a lot of airplay. <clears throat> and of course, you know, we were already the Beatles in Philadelphia, so it made total sense. What is it like? When, you, when you're backstage with all these legends, which, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you had talked about Tommy, so it must have been huge when you opened for The Who. But what is it like when, every, I mean, everybody was there. What's that like? Are you like a kid in a candy store? Like, oh, my God, there's, there's him, there's who. I mean, how do, you, how do you act cool without losing it? I had a really good solution. I went home and watched the show on TV. <laughs> It was hot. It was crazy. It was chaotic backstage. I, you know, I was there long enough to see people coming and going. It's like, I don't want to walk up to whoever and, hey, man, I'm, I'm Eric. You know, no. I, when it's time, I'll meet them. You know, I met, I met three of the Beatles, and it was always on, on my terms. I met, we met Paul McCartney at, at, um, when we did Top of the Pops with him in London. And he recognized us. Wow. Big fan. Same thing with George Harrison. Ringo Starr I met because he, he actually was with a friend of mine and they started talking and Ringo wanted to meet me. So that's the way to meet your idols. <clears throat> so when we opened, for, when we played with The Who, I did not talk to Pete Townsend because Pete Townsend didn't look like he wanted to be talked to. <clears throat> and I didn't want to be that guy. And now he answers my emails, and he's really nice. See, it's funny, and that's good that you said that, because there's always that guy. You know, I mean, how many times do you run into that guy backstage, and how do you avoid that guy? Because, unfortunately, some people are just overbearing. I mean, I sit there when you guys play at the Keswick. You know, you see people lining up on the sides, and then David always gets me the wristband. So when you get the wristband, you know, you can hang out after. And people give you, like, this look like... What is that? What, what, what is that wristband? Where do we get that? How do you deal with it when you have just these people? And, and to use the term pain in the ass, how do you avoid it? Because you're a nice guy and they are fans. So you have to respect that. I don't avoid it. Because I'm also that guy that <laughs> talks to everyone. Because I'm really grateful to them. Everyone who comes. 
It's the reason we're here. Now, in your career, and you guys do the tour overseas, you're huge in Germany. Why do you think you're so, I mean, your guys are, what makes you huge? What What was it that people in Germany just love you, and they still love you, and you still, I mean, you headline festivals. How did, when did that love for you guys start? Our second Columbia album came out in 87, which was the beginning of the decline of our career in the United States. Johnny B was the first single from that album. Not what our audience expected after And We Danced, I would imagine. Kind of a dark song with a dark video, directed, by the way, by David Fincher. It's crazy. So, but, you know, a great record, a great song. I'm, I'm proud of it. And by October of 87, when we were struggling in the U.S. and already planning for the release of our second single, which was Satellite, we were told that we were going to Europe to do a promotional tour and a couple of couple of concerts, mostly promotional. And that, by the way, Johnny B is a hit in Germany. So, you know, the first show we did was in, in, in Norway, in Oslo. They knew Johnny B. We played the next night in Stockholm, right around the corner from where I am now, by the way. But they knew Johnny B. And then we got to Germany and they knew everything they knew the whole album I think it's about Germany more than it is about the band I think Germany en masse is a more faithful audience they go out more they're more open minded regarding music they're not so much into genre even the metalheads there will go see classical music you mentioned the song Satellite I, you know, it's funny. The video is great. I love that song. And as I said, when I saw it with Miami Vice, I was like, yes! Where did where did that, the whole story from that come through? Was it because of the, the, the whole Jim and Tammy Faye shit all the time? I and mean, where did that come from? Because it, if you listen to the words now, because, you know, when, when you're older, you knew how, how much of a scam those guys were. You saw it and you're like, oh, my God. And that's a whole Miami Vice episode focuses on that, which one the songs read. Did you guys just write that as a screw you or, did, or just to inform people? What, where did that come from? Well, was a, there's a bit of a screw you, and there's a little bit of sympathy, because, you know, we're all, hey, satellite man, you know, we were being a bit charitable, I think, at, even, as, even as sarcastic as, as we were being, we were still recognizing the humanity of these heinous creatures <laughs> who were duping everyone, including themselves. Now, when you guys play live, you play Boys of the Summer, Boys of Summer, what made you choose that? Was that because when you toured with Henley, or, or what made you choose that song? Because you do a very different version. I put this on Facebook the other day. I said, three, a song that three artists recorded, that, you, Don Henley, and the Ataris. That's one of those songs, and they're all great versions. Sometimes you hear a cover, and you're like, yeah, that sort of sucks. Your version's great, and it's different. What made you guys decide that to do that, and what made you decide to somewhat slow it down? First of all, our version is the best version. Just, just want to make make that perfectly clear. Um, no, Don's version is insane, and the, his vocal on that is is unbelievable. We, Rob and I, were asked to do a, a, a benefit in New York. I think it was a Cat Club. It was a um, not Music Cares. Uh, 
whatever the music education charity is that MTV was involved, that VH1 was involved in, not give the music back. Um, but um, it was an 80s night. So it was us, Patti Smythe, Cindy Lauper, and um, two guys from The Fix, Cy and uh, Jamie. And we were supposed to play our biggest hit. <clears throat> um, our first hit and a song from the 80s that we wish we had written. Not so easy. If it, if it had been a song from the 60s or 70s, that would have been really easy. But the 80s, Rob and I actually went through the Billboard charts from the entire, from the entire decade trying to find a song that we wish we'd written. Um, at one point, we were looking at Another Brick in the Wall, which came out in 1980. But then we realized the only thing that we... No, nah, we just... That, that wasn't a song. That wasn't a real crowd pleaser for us. And then we landed on Boys of Summer. The only thing with Boys of Summer is how to sing it. Because Don Henley sang that song in the key of stratosphere. <laughs> and then I picked up the mandolin and I started playing that riff in the beginning. And I realized that that riff was in the key of D, which was a very good key for us to sing the song in. So by the end of the day, we had an arrangement in the key of D on the mandolin. We went up and did the song a couple of nights later, went over really well and we said, hey, we should do it with the band. Now you said if it was the '60s or '70s, it would have been an easy choice. What would be what would have been your choice in the '60s, and what would your choice have been from the '70s? Uh, from the '60s, any any Beatles song, uh, any Who song. From the '70s, oh, actually the '70s, that would have been a tougher call. It might have been, believe it or not, "Box of Rain" and "Grateful Dead." Okay. Um. It might have been Birds of Fire from Mahavishnu Orchestra, even though it's an instrumental. Um, at the time, it might have been a Steely Dan song, although now I wouldn't want to write a Steely Dan song. But yeah, it might have been, might have been Reeling in the Years or Kid Charlemagne. No, it was funny. It was um, with your songwriting. The guy I go to see the Hooters with at the Keswick is an old college buddy of mine. His name's Paul Guerrero. And um, he calls and he always goes, hey, I'm going down. And it turns out like last year, I think like a few weeks before, you were, I believe, in L.A. writing with Mindy A. Bear, who's his sister-in-law. And Mindy's right. been on the show. How did how did how like how do you meet up with these artists who write with you? Like, how did you find Mindy? I mean, what happened? Yeah, Mindy was, I have a friend uh, in Toronto who's a manager, he managed the Tragically Hit when we were around, and um, we were talking, and he like, wanted to, he said, you ever go to L.A.? I said, yeah, I'd like to go to L.A. He said, let me hook you up with a couple of people to write with. And he knew Mindy, so that's how I met Mindy. Now, when you go to write for somebody, do they have something in mind that you want to write for them or do you write that first and then present it to somebody? I, I never prepare for a writing session. So, or let me paraphrase. I very rarely prepare. I usually go in and I want it to come to happen in the room. Sometimes they'll come to me with an idea, even if it's just a title, which is great. 
very easy to work through a title. But usually it's just sort of whatever whatever energy is in the room. And that's the song we wrote. We wrote a great song together. And it just totally came from the room. I remember I, I, I said to her, whatever, whatever we write, it should have a signature sax line. You know, like uh, like Baker Street. So first we came up with the sax line and then started singing. And by the end of the day, there was a song. Now, going into the future with touring, it's so funny. You know, I, I had tickets for uh, Chicago and Rick Springfield. And, and, you know, everyone's refunding your tickets. But for Chicago and Rick Springfield, they said, oh, we're rescheduling it till July 2021. And I'm going, well, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive July 20. Just give me my money back and we'll see what happens. What is it, since you guys lost some dates, how do you go about rescheduling? Because, you know, you you sort of are putting your life somewhat on hold because you don't know what's going to happen. There may be other developments. Like when you are rescheduling that whole block of the, it was the 40th anniversary, now it's the 41st. How do you go about rescheduling that? First of all, it is still the 40th anniversary. It's just a year late. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, our entire German tour has already been rescheduled. Our promoter in Germany was very quick, and he got it done. You just do it. You just say, not happening this year. Let's do it next year. And do you do it a year from the date? No, no, close. We tried to keep the routing pretty much the same. We had a pretty good, pretty good routing, which is a rare and beautiful thing. Now, like I said, the Keswick, you play such a high-energy, kick-ass show. When you're on the road in Germany, you're playing for, I guess, 20, 22 straight nights. How do you physically and mentally prepare for that just because you, you guys have to be exhausted because it's not, as I like to say, you guys are just kicking ass up there. It's not like you're taking taking numbers and saying, oh, well, here's an acoustic little ditty. Every song, you're doing it and you guys are just jamming. How do you hold up? Because, you know, both of us are no young spring chickens anymore. It's not, it's not like, you know, playing back in the day where you play, you know, the road and it was nothing. You could stay up till four in the morning and go to a radio thing at seven in the morning. How do you adjust to that now? I've got more energy than ever. I think we all do. When we're on the road, it's limitless. It's crazy. I mean, we, we, we try not to do more than four shows in a row. We had, I think, 30-some shows booked for Germany this summer, which would have basically taken up all of June and July to August. But you get so energized by doing the show. You know, and sleep becomes less of a necessity, <clears throat> at least for me. I'm not much of a sleeper anyway. To me, it's just wasting time. Now, when you play your shows, I'm sure you have a set list. Do you ever veer off the set list a little bit and throw something else in, especially when you're playing, let's say, the Kazakh or an Ocean City? Very rarely. Um, some bands can do that. Some of the members of our band are more comfortable with that than others. Let's just put it that way. Now, uh, we got to wrap up soon, but I know I saw you on Facebook about, uh, tell me about the beer. What's the Eric Brazilian beer? Oh, I, I did a solo show at a, a festival in Sweden last summer, and they had made up beer for all of the artists. So there was Tommy Nielsen beer, and there was Eric Brazilian beer. I still had four bottles of it. <laughs> 
See, that's when you know you made it when there's a beer named after you. You know, that's it. I thought having my name on the on on the on a dressing room door at Carnegie Carnegie Hall was the pinnacle of success. But no, having a beer with my name on it. What, besides the beer at Carnegie Hall, what would you say is to you your pinnacle of success in your career? When you look back and go, this this was just something great. Like when you're on your deathbed and you go, I just remember this date. Is there a date like that that you remember? There are dates like that that I remember. There are experiences like that. Um, I mean, I can I wouldn't say there's one. Um. For me, it's mostly moments of creation. You know, when we wrote this song or that song, or when I recorded that guitar solo, or did that vocal, or when Paul McCartney came, you know, came up to us, or when I when I didn't win the Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> so, when's the solo? Is, do you have a date for when the solo album is going to come out? Nah, nah, I don't. I, I thought I would have it out by now. I thought it was just going to be one of these slam through it and put it out things, but I think I want to make it as good as I can. I, I would imagine sometime before the end of the summer. Great. Well, you know, Eric, I want, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, do you still are you still on Twitter? You used to tweet a lot. Do you tweet still? I don't tweet very much. No, because Twitter's it's a hellhole now, political hellhole, and I, I I don't I don't do politics publicly. And I'm afraid anything I tweet will be construed as, as politics, and I just don't want to get into that. I'm the same way. It's like you can't put anything. You can't even put a joke without 87. Even on Facebook, you just put something humorous, and all of a sudden people start arguing, and you're like, guys, guys, there's there's nothing to do with this political. I'm just trying to be funny. So anyway, anyway, I want to thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, the Hooter, the what's the website? Hooters Band, right? Music.com. Okay, check them out, people. Go listen to Hooters. Go listen to Satellite today. Go listen to Satellite. Go listen to their version of Boys at Summer. It's great. As I said, I I, I put the, I have the Amazon Music, and I'll, I'll put them on a. I'll just say play Hooters music, Alexa, and she plays it. But then every once in a while, I'll go play Satellite or play Boys at Summer, just because you're in the mood for them. And while you're at it, play Eric Brazilian's cover of Help. Okay, I will play that when we get off. I will play it. And people, you play it. Don't be a jerk. When he tells you to play it. You have to play it. Anyway, people, I'm Steve Cooper, Molly is hip is my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.